Well, here we are. Here we are in week 16 of the study of the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 6, so we're moving right along, right? Last week we looked at the elementary principles of the faith. They are the things a believer must know and do to be mature, to be a mature follower of the Messiah. Mastery of these things make you ready to go into the deeper things of Messiah. And not just that, a surety of these things keep you strong in the faith as they give you a firm foundation in the Lord. And what are they? Well, they were the things we covered in the first 14 weeks. Plus, he says this in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Messiah and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, of faith in God, instruction in baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And God permitting, we'll do so. And we're going to do so. Next, he's going to tell us why those things are so important. And, and some other things about our salvation. In verse 4 he says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and in subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, we have five things mentioned here. And first he says, for those who have been enlightened. And by that, I take that to mean those who have understood these elementary things. And also that Yeshua is the sin offering, has provided purification for their sins. Those are elementary truths that we have spoken of. Now, none of those things really make sense to the rest of the world. Think about it. None of those things make sense to the rest of the world. In fact, for most of the world, those things are nonsense. And if you go teaching those to people in the world, they, they think you're the raving, a raving lunatic. Think about it. A young man, a Yeshua, a man who died on the stake and is the son of God? He was with God at creation and all things were created by and through him. And then he became like us so that he could die? And be raised up again to be king? Really? He died only to be raised from the dead to become a source of salvation for all who trust in him? You see, when you think about that, it's utter nonsense to the average person. You have to be touched by the Spirit of God. That touch is part of the enlightenment. In other words, it's a gift and you cannot get there on your own. That touch of the Spirit makes all those things yes and amen. You know, many men read the Bible and study the Bible, and really, it means nothing to them when they're done. I've read about Jewish rabbis who've read the New Testament, and you know, they come away with nothing except Yeshua was a good Jew. As for this whole party, he died and was resurrected. He was raised from the dead. He's the son of God. That's all fictitious stories made up by his disciples to those rabbis. You see, without the touch of the Spirit of God, it's all just nonsense. The stuff of fairy tales 
But after that touch of the Spirit, then it all makes sense because you've been enlightened to the truth. You've gone from darkness into light. And so he says next, he says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. That gift that Messiah has brought, each of us have experienced that gift. How shall we ignore such a great salvation? After the Spirit touches you and you believe that feeling of total relief that your transgressions have been forgiven, that feeling that everything is brand new, this great salvation that he spoke of, an enlightenment that causes you to hold everything that you read from the Word of God dear because the Spirit continues to enlighten you to the truth of the Word of God. You know, I remember... When I prayed and asked Yeshua to take control of my life, I confessed that I knew that I had made a mess of my life and that I needed him to go on and that I couldn't even continue without his aid. I went home and I woke up the next morning from the drunken stupor of the night before and I knew something was different because the very thing that I used to do first thing in the morning because I had to do it, I did not do. I did not get up immediately, go to the kitchen, make myself a drink, and grab a cigarette. This morning was different. I didn't have that urge any longer. This morning, everything was different. I had no desire for the things that had made me sick and caused me to cry out to Yeshua the night before. Then as the day went by, I relished in the newness of things. I couldn't believe everything was brand new. Everything was so new that I thought perhaps during the course of the evening, Yeshua had changed everything. That I would go from my house and that I would find that everyone had experienced something similar. And in my naivete, I thought the kingdom had come. Well, it only took one trip to the grocery store to realize that the only thing that had changed was me. <laughs> the kingdom had surely come for me. I was a new person, and that new person saw everything differently, so differently that my reality was so totally changed that I had really thought the whole world had changed till I went out in it. I'd been forgiven, restored. I'd tasted the heavenly gift that he speaks of. That's the heavenly gift, being forgiven, having a clean state, slate, Messiah's true atonement was exactly that, once and for all atonement, that, that's the relief. And it's an enlightenment. You know that you know Yeshua is Lord and nothing will ever take that away from you again. A relief that would have been just as poignant to the readers of the text of this letter. Read about the salvations of that time. Go into your Bible, the book of Acts, and read about these miraculous happenings. They were healed as they as they were saved. They'd been to the temple. They'd seen sin offerings offered over and over. And to now have experienced an offering of eternal significance and eternal renewal. It is the undeniable truth once you've experienced. You know that Yeshua is Lord. You see, he's saying, hold on. He's saying, hold on. Because how can we ignore such a great gift, such a great salvation? And he says, those who have tasted the Holy Spirit, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. I want to read about the breath of God. John chapter 20, verse 21 says, 
And Yeshua said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And he breathed on them, receive you the Holy Spirit. You have shared in the Holy Spirit. Do you see the imagery here? It's the Garden of Eden imagery. You see, when God scooped up some dust from the earth and he breathed in it his Holy Spirit, or we could say the holy breath of God, and dirt became Adam, a living, breathing soul, a living nephesh in Hebrew. And here Yeshua takes those who have believed, those who are really worthy of death, without Yeshua, whose lives had come to an end, they were going to return to dust, and he breathes in them life from the dead, a life from the dust of the earth. And we've shared in that. We've all experienced that newness, that renewal in our lives. At least I hope you have, because if you haven't, you need to come up and talk to me after service, and let's get you there. Amen? Life from the dust of the earth. That breath remains in us. It guides us into an obedience to God's word. It speaks to our hearts. It bids us to change, to continue the process that God has begun. Not to return to our old ways that we've known before, but to turn to the ways of God. It searches our hearts if we allow it to find the wicked way in us. It changes us and strengthens us. And without the breath of God, we read this of Peter. Matthew chapter 26, verse 74. Immediately the rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words of Yeshua. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You see, without the breath of God, Peter buckles under the persecution. He's in the courtyard of the high priest. And he fears that high priest. And the death that could ensue with one wrong word. And he denies Yeshua. Without the Holy Spirit, we're prone to sin. We're prone to sin again. We're prone to return to the muck from which we've come out of. Now, let's listen to that same Peter as he's before the high priest. After Yeshua breathed the Spirit into him. He's preaching in the temple. And now, he's before the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 4, verse 5, it says, The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called out on account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Yeshua of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man that stands before you is healed. He is, Messiah is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Where's the fear now? It's gone. Death has no hold on him any longer. He's seen the resurrection Messiah. And so he knows the teachings that he's heard about the resurrection are true. He's enlightened. He has the breath of God. What can man do to him? Not only that, but then we read this of Peter in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It says this. 
This persecution was general throughout the whole Roman Empire, but it rather increased than diminished the spirit of Christianity. In the course of it, St. Paul and St. Peter were martyred. That's from Fox's Book of Martyrs. With the Holy Spirit, Peter was strengthened even unto death. Death had no mastery over him any longer. The suffering of these believers, even unto death, men like Stephen, James, and others, they held on and they'll be given life that is life. So he's telling his readers the same thing. Don't be discouraged. Hold on. We have an eternal high priest. Peter was strengthened because of Yeshua and the Holy Spirit. Now indwelling him and strengthening him. So next he says, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. You know, when I read this, tasted the goodness of the word of God, I'm, I'm reminded of a custom of reading the words of Torah to a child and putting honey on his lips to teach him that the words of Torah are indeed sweet as honey. We see this in a, in a tradition in Exodus Rabbah. Because the Torah and the commandments which the Lord had given them, of which it is written, sweeter also than honey of the honeycomb. Now remember, the audience has been reminded in previous chapters that Yeshua is the Torah made good news. Where it brought the sting of death for transgression, Yeshua has restored the elixir of life to it, to those words. They have tasted the goodness of the living word. Amen? And then he says, the powers of the coming age. These folks are not unfamiliar with the power of God. Think about it. They knew the God of Israel empowers those who are in his kingdom to do good works, to take care of the kingdom on earth. Think about it. In his kingdom, there is no sickness. There's no death. No language barriers. Everyone speaks holy tongue. The residents don't have physical restrictions like we do. And the power of the coming age is the power to heal so that those who are entering the kingdom conform to the kingdom. Fully healed, fully restored. Read stories in the Messianic writings of people coming to faith in the Messiah issue. They're healed at the same time that they're saved. There's no sickness in the kingdom. You see, people are healed and they think miracle of miracles. When in fact... It's just life as usual in the kingdom. And it's just a mere foretaste of the kingdom of God where everything is going to be made perfect once more. The power of the kingdom is to resurrect those who are inheriting life. That is what made Messiah's resurrection such a game changer. Things that these people had learned all their lives about the resurrection of the dead and eternal life were really unfounded. They were arguable. The, it was one of the main differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But when Yeshua was raised from the dead, the teachings about eternal life and resurrection were no longer just gleanings from the Bible. They were fact. Members of God's kingdom are not limited in their understanding. They can see the plan of God. They can see how it unfolds. There are no language barriers in God's kingdom. Everybody speaks the same language. And these are just a few examples of the kingdom. The recipients of this letter are familiar with the powers of the coming age. They'd seen healing 
And I'm sure some of them were on the receiving end of some of those healings. Amen? They may not have witnessed the resurrection, but they'd all heard it recounted to them. And for certain, they've tasted the goodness of the coming age. They had experienced Yeshua. They knew. They had witnessed this great healing. Think about that healing. Dead back to life. That's healing. Amen? Yeshua raised from the dead. Some of them have even touched his hands. Touched the scars on his hands and his feet and his side. You say, why did he have scars if he was healed from death? Well, he'll always have those scars because they're part of the glory of what he did. You see, and when you see them, they're going to be the most beautiful thing that you'll ever see. Personally, though, I hope I have a few less scars. And I'd really like to be a bit younger, too. (laughs) But I'll take what I get. They were familiar with things like hearing God restore one tongue to the nations. On Pentecost, everyone heard Peter speaking in their own language. They had seen healings, heard prophecies. The powers of the coming age are available to those who trust in God. They're not supernatural events. In the kingdom, it's just everyday stuff. There are no languages in the kingdom. There's one holy tongue. There's no sick in the kingdom. All are healed. There's nothing hidden in the kingdom, but everything is revealed. Past, present, and future are nothing. There's just an awareness of everything there. Yeshua did not make a big deal out of healing. He didn't say, oh, look at the great miracle I just did. Come gather around, look. He just said, get up and walk, because that's life in God's kingdom. Peter, Paul, and John, they didn't make a big deal out of the things they did. They did the same thing. Those were things that were just life in the kingdom of heaven. They didn't sound trumpets because this is just life in the kingdom. They just said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I'll give you. Get up and walk. And with that he says, and remember he's still referring back to God sees all things, nothing's hidden from him. That's part of what he said before. He says it is impossible if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because of their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. This is an interesting verse because this verse is actually used by two opposing claims. One claim is once saved, always saved. And then there are say, no, that's not true. You can lose your salvation. But I want you to understand something. That's not the point he's trying to make here. He's not trying to make this point here. Because the key words in the verse are public disgrace, as we're going to see. Subjecting Messiah to public disgrace. What would subject him to public disgrace? Well, it would be something that you did publicly, right? Denial of these things we've been talking about and Messiah publicly. So again, he's not talking about eternal security in this passage. And if you try to make that doctrine out of this, you're, you're in error. You can't make a doctrine out of, like that out of one verse. When you pass judgment one way or another in that regard, you pass judgment. You, you, can, put, you, you can put them, they, they're actually putting themselves in the judgment seat of God. And who wants to be there? Who wants to be in the judgment seat of God? 
the author is saying, hold on to the faith because there's a possibility that you will renounce the Messiah and the gifts of God. You know, the Calvinists, once saved, always saved, are actually putting themselves in the seat, judgment seat of God when they say, you cannot lose your salvation. Those who follow uh, the other side of that teaching, you can lose yourself. Again, they're putting themselves in the judgment seat of God. And because each of them clings so hard to, to what, that, what they believe, what this judgment that isn't even theirs, they bring disgrace to the body of Messiah through their bickering and their arguing and their separation. If they think they have a greater understanding of these things, then they should take Paul's advice. Because when we argue and divide over things like this that are disputable, because really they're God's and God's alone to decide, we show the ugly side of ourselves, the fleshly side of ourselves, not the shalom of the kingdom, not the shalom Yeshua has brought into the world. And we bring reproach on ourselves in Yeshua. If we think that we're so wise, we should remember the words of Shaul. In chapter 14 of Romans, he says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. But anyway, all that aside, and I don't want to get too involved with it because I don't need, that isn't even what he's talking about here. And really, after reading what the writer has said about Yeshua, I don't think he placed himself in that, in that judgment seat of God. For me, the conclusion of the matter is he's warning them and us to be careful, because if you deny Yeshua and the gifts, you should be aware that you're placing yourself in a position that may have no recourse. And so beware. This is a warning to beware. So next, the writer uses a parable to further his point. He says in verse 7, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed and end up, and it will end up be burned. And the end will be burned. And so the writer compares those who have been enlightened with fertile soil and the rain that has fallen upon it, which produces a crop. The soil is transformed and has life-producing qualities by the rain. And so, too, the change in us should produce life-producing properties that produce good fruit for God and other lives for the kingdom. Paul speaks of that this way. He says in Galatians 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the sinful nature and its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. When we display these things, we bring forth a good crop. People see us. They see the change in us and glorify God. Amen? He compares those who fall away, who don't remain in Messiah, as Paul would put it, to the land that when watered only produces thorns and thistles. There's no change. Or the change isn't complete. Still we have these words that I talked about before. Public disgrace. Making Messiah public disgrace. All of this hinges on these, on these words. These are things 
that we can do like falling away, that like denying Messiah publicly, denying him silently by doing nothing to witness him to the world that caused you loss because they are done publicly, they can cause him disgrace. Look, if you deny Messiah publicly and then repent publicly even, you still bring him disgrace. And your witness for the Messiah will after that have no value whatsoever. You know, I remembered a fellow who attended another Messianic congregation in town who renounced Messiah publicly. In fact, not only did he renounce him publicly, he became a spokesman for Jews for Judaism. And if you don't know what Jews for Judaism is, it's an organization that fights against uh, the salvation of Jewish people. But he became a spokesperson for Jews for Judaism. He renounces Messiah Yeshua to the Jewish people. In essence, he says, Messianic Judaism, of Messianic Judaism, hey, I've been there, I've done that, there's nothing to it, it's all nonsense. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you something, I don't hold much hope for his repentance. He's crossed the line that the author of Hebrews speaks of. He's caused Messiah public disgrace. Listen to what F.F. Bruce writes in his book, on Commentary on Hebrews. He says, people who commit this sin, he says, cannot be brought back to repentance by renouncing Messiah. They put themselves in a position of those who, deliberately refusing his claim to be the Son of God, had him crucified and exposed to public shame. Those who repudiate their salvation procured by Messiah will find no, none elsewhere. So you have to ask yourself, can this guy be brought back to repentance? Well, for me, it doesn't look good. But then again, remember, who's the judge? You see, I don't have the whole picture of this guy's life. Had he really ever been enlightened? Because that's who he's talking about here, those who have been enlightened. Had he really been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift? You see, I have no idea. Unlike God, there are things that are hidden from my sight, but they're not hidden from God's sight. So I can't say if he had a... Uh, I can't say if he can repent, but I can say this. It's a perfect example of what the writer is talking about. There's something else about this passage that's frightening for me and that goes along with this. Remember it says the person who falls away must have experienced this heavenly gift shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the coming age. He was enlightened. Now... Listen to the words of the Master. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. He who is not gathered with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So if we take the words of the master at face value, this could be what the author refers to. And so he's saying, hang on. Let's close with another parable, which is much the same thing the writer of Hebrews used. It's a parable of a sower. And I'm going to read, uh, the nice thing about the parable of the sower is you, you don't have to give an interpretation because Yeshua gives the interpretation. I always like the parables where he interprets them himself. You get an accurate interpretation and not that of some other man. 
But I'm just going to read the interpretation. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what was sown in his heart. This seed, this is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell in rocky places is the man who hears the word of God and receives it with joy. But since it has no root, it lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word of God. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on the good soil is the man who hears the word and understand it. He produces a crop yielding 160, 30 times what was sown. And so what the author is saying is hold on to your first love. Don't fall away. Or maybe you'll be putting yourself in a position of no return. Instead, let's focus on being the good seed and produce a crop of 30, 60, or 100-fold. Amen? And let's bring the worship team back up. Thank you, thank you.